Well, I'm going to do something a little different this morning than what is typically my, my style of things. Uh, I hope that you'll be able to see some of this. If not, maybe we can uh, turn the lights down a little bit and maybe the uh, shades. But you guys be the ju- judge of that. Uh, as I put together this uh, brief slide presentation of my thoughts on this day, uh, some of it may be I have a lot of words in there, and I apologize if it doesn't come out as completely or as fully as I would like. When I was uh, teaching back east, uh, I was at a school that was very supportive of my being able to share with my students about the Jewish roots of our faith in Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, and also about Jewish history and Jewish concerns. In fact, on many occasions, I was privileged to attend the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's uh, seminars and conferences simply because I was a teacher. And so, to um, uh, my amazement, uh, they were just very gracious uh, to us as they provided us with the curriculum, as they provided us with all kinds of materials, and then they gave us a voucher to use at the bookstore. And so in my library, you'll see a pretty good selection of materials on the Holocaust. As I learned more and more in this official setting, I then was able to bring some of those thoughts and ideas back to my students. And in fact, my students, uh, or the school that I taught at, uh, permitted me to spend as much time as I would like. There was one year when I spent four months reflecting on the Holocaust. I wonder what their parents thought. But they were actually, many of them were really thrilled that their kids we're learning about this moment in time. Because in most high schools, you might spend a week, maybe a couple of days at this point in history and in uh, history classes. But I was very fortunate. And so some of the things I like to share with you, you can put this up now if you like. Some of the things I like to share with you flow out of those many years of teaching this material, thinking about it, and learning more and more as time uh, goes on. So I recently just put this together, some photographs that I was able to take in the background. You could focus on the photographs so that uh, you don't have to be distracted. But I was touched by the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 62, in which Isaiah has Messiah speaking. We're going to come back to this at the end. But it's the Messiah of Israel who is speaking. And he says, I have placed watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. Give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Fascinating words to me because in the Hebrew, it actually says, you who are God's remembrancers as if God needs to be reminded about anything. But yet we are told, and Isaiah uh, mentions and has the Messiah speaking, you who are God's remembrancers, remind him of his promises to Israel. Bring before him regularly what God had revealed his intentions are for his chosen people. At a time like this, when we reflect upon the millions of Jewish people who had perished, 
It behooves us to be God's watchmen on the walls, as it were. Literally, I think, and there are differences of opinion, but I think these watchmen are angels. They're on the walls of Jerusalem, praying that God's will and purposes for the people, for the nation, for the land, and for the city would come to pass. I like to sort of springboard from that and to think of ourselves as watchmen, as it were, as we look over the scene of our people, their condition, their state of affairs, and their needs. And thus, we are commanded in Scripture to be in prayer, the least, the very least, to be in prayer for our people Israel. Isaiah says, or excuse me, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. David writes, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they shall prosper that love thee. Samuel, even when the Jewish people reject God as their king and want a king like all the other nations and appoint or have chosen for them Saul, Samuel says, I will not sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. So in the very least, as watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem, metaphorically speaking, we ought to be in prayer for our our people. But we can do more than that. We can identify with them. We can open our hearts so as to establish relationships with Jewish people that we might not otherwise have such relationships with. Today, we have the privilege of standing publicly with our people and to march through the streets here in the San Fernando Valley down to Panga in order to demonstrate before this community and all who might see us that we stand as one with the people of Israel, We stand against such hatred and such tyranny as expressed by the Nazis in time past. And we stand in solidarity with our people, Israel. In many respects, our people reject us because of our faith in Yeshua as Messiah. But even though they may reject us because of our faith, we will not reject them because of their great need for him, even as we have come to realize it in our own lives. So this afternoon, and I asked uh, you to come, feel free to come wearing shorts, feel free to come wearing jeans, because after our service, we'll take to the streets and we'll head down to the bank, and we've got a PA system set up there, and we've got a little ceremony that we will observe that may take upwards of around a half hour, 45 minutes, I assume. And it will give us opportunity to publicly express our faith in Yeshua and publicly express our concern for our people, and publicly raise our voices in praise to our God and prayer for our people as well. But what I'd like to do is sort of set the stage and to give some background, although many of us, most of us, maybe all of us, are very well familiar with the events surrounding the Holocaust. Now, Anne's going to try to keep up with me because what I have here is not what is up there. So be patient with her if things are uh, slightly behind. But in any case, uh, this Yom HaShoah, I was thinking of Isaiah 64. Now, when one thinks of the Holocaust, I think nowhere else in all of history and all of time and place are the words of the historian George Santayana more true than in the barracks of Auschwitz, that if we forget the past, we are only doomed to repeat it and to live it and to experience experience it again. Those, he said, who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. 
It's in the barracks of Auschwitz, I think, that those words are most fully and completely realized. This refrain warns us of what happens when apathy replaces action, tyranny replaces tolerance, and when hate replaces love. That's what we see in Nazi Germany. And keep in mind that the Nazis were voted into power. They were not merely a dictatorship that secured power. It was a democratic society. And in Nazi Germany, there were some 18 different political parties that were running for office in 1932-1933. Adolf Hitler and the National Socialists received 37, 38% of the national vote. Out of all those parties, keep in mind, out of 18 different parties, he received almost half of the votes by the citizens of Germany. All of the political parties in Germany were anti-Semitic. If they were, there was only one party that was not, but all of them were anti-Semitic in some degree. Perhaps none of them, other than the Nazi party, attempted to uh, do exactly what the Nazis had said, but they all stood on a platform that wanted to marginalize the Jewish people. And yet, the Nazis rose to power because of the popular vote of the citizens of that nation. Also keep in mind, I've oftentimes asked my students when I started the class, what percentage do you think of the German population was Jewish? What percentage of the population of Germany at the time Hitler came to power was Jewish? And I've heard all kinds of things. Some of my students said, well, perhaps 70%. There are young people, though, you know. Some of them said maybe 40, 30%. The truth of the matter is, less than one half of 1% were Jews in Germany. There were only 500,000 Jews in 1932 out of over 5 million people or so, in, uh, or 50,000 Jews over uh, 5 million people in Germany. By 1938-39, when the war occurs and Germany invades Poland and Kristallnacht has occurred, most Jews have left Germany. Between 1932 and 1937, there aren't very many Jews remaining in Germany at that time. Most have left already. Some, few, came to the United States. Many go to France, the Netherlands, and other countries in Europe. Unfortunately, those countries would be engulfed by the Nazi empire, and, will, and those Jews would be caught anyway. But in Germany, by 1937-38, most Jews were gone. There were very few that resided in Germany. Poland had the largest Jewish community at that time and in the world. Three and a half million Jews lived in Poland. And so you could see why the killing centers were set up in Poland and in that area. Most Jews were residing there. In either case, what was happening in Germany was an attitude, a spirit that we must be concerned about. An attitude of apathy to those who were suffering an attitude of intolerance to those who were different or thought of as being different than the others, an attitude of hate rather than an attitude of love, compassion, and concern. Certainly in no other time in history do the words of the Abrahamic covenant find their fulfillment either, where God promises Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee, but I will curse them that curse thee. 
the destruction that Europe experiences from 1939 to 1949 is unbelievable. Some 40 million people will ultimately die in this conflict among nations. And indeed, God does bring judgment ultimately upon those who harm his people Israel and does bring blessing upon those who love them and support them and ultimately bless them. Maybe not in accordance with our timetable or in accordance with our manner or desire, but ultimately God does judge and God does bless. And if not in this life, certainly in the life to come. The image you're seeing up here is the Reichstag, where many of the laws were passed in Germany that marginalized the Jews in Nuremberg in the south and the Reichstag in Berlin or the parliament in the north. Hitler's systematic plan to destroy an entire people has been termed the Holocaust. The word Holocaust comes from a Hebrew word, olah, which means to go up and is the word used for a burnt offering. The Hebrew word shoah means to burn. So when we say that Yom HaShoah, we mean the day of burning, the day of destruction, the day when our people were set for annihilation and ultimately extermination. So what is the Holocaust? Perhaps the most comprehensive definition, and by the way, this is a, a photograph of the, um, the mansion in which some 25 PhDs gathered in Wannsee, Berlin, to put together the plans for the, quote, final solution. This is where they met to discuss how we're going to kill every Jewish person we possibly can in Europe and ultimately around the world once we conquered Europe and then conquered the entire world. The Holocaust, this is the United States Memorial uh, Museum's definition. The Holocaust was the systematic, bureaucratic annihilation of six million Jews and others by the Nazi regime and their collaborators as a central act of state during World War II. It's important that we understand a couple of terms that are used here so you can get a sense of the magnitude of what's at stake. First of all, the point of this is that it was systematic. There was an orderly, procedural, methodical method that the Nazis put in place in order to see that the Jewish people ultimately and others would be killed and destroyed. This wasn't haphazard. It didn't happen uh, simply moment to moment. It was a plan that was set in place that was systematized and followed to the letter. For third, secondly, it was bureaucratic. That is to say, it was sanctioned by the government. It was against the law to save Jewish people. It was against the law not to divulge any Jews that you might know. This was a governmental policy that was instituted by Germany in 1932 through 1945. It further was concerned or desired the annihilation of the Jewish people. It wasn't just merely oppressing them. It wasn't just merely uh, controlling them. It, was, it had to do with annihilating them, exterminating them, 
killing them, completely wiping them out. The fact that there are Jewish people today is testimony to God's saving grace in that such a thing had not occurred. By the Nazi regime, of course, we're dealing with that power, that political power that was in place under Adolf Hitler. And by collaborators, we're talking about individuals who had joined with the Nazi effort. Sometimes these collaborators were individuals that got uh, intimately connected with the destruction of the Jewish people. Sometimes these collaborators were merely apathetic and stood by and just watched as things happened. From the Nazi perspective, they didn't care if you were actively engaged with them in killing Jews or if you were apathetic and simply ignored what we were doing. Either way, the Jewish people suffered. What they were concerned about were those who opposed them, those who sought to get involved and to act and to make a difference, those who would attempt to rescue the Jewish people. Keep in mind, both the Jews and the Nazis were attempting to gain adherence to their cause. They both needed those who were in Germany and in the surrounding European nations at the time. The Germans could not have killed six million Jews without the help of others. And those Jews who survived could not have survived without the help of others. So the bystanders are the ones who are observing what's going on, and they are forced to make a choice. Either they're going to be complicitous with the Nazis and aid them, or they're going to remain apathetic and not help the Jews. Either way, the Nazis win, or they're going to stand by the Jewish people to help them. There was no middle ground. You either were with the Nazis, or you were with the Jewish people. And thus, those bystanders were placed in a position where they needed to make a decision. The question it raises for you and I today is what kind of decisions will we make when those around us are struggling and suffering? When those in our community or in other parts of the world are in need of our support? And if we're thinking about the physical ramifications of not helping others, consider the spiritual ramifications of not sharing our faith with others. It is one thing to lose your life in this world. It's another thing to lose your life in the world to come. And so if there is a lesson to be learned here, it is certainly that we are to stand up in time and history, in place, in a real world to make a difference in it but also to make a difference in the lives of individuals for the glory of God and for their eternal benefit. So these are serious questions that Yom HaShoah raises for us and raises for me. This was, the Holocaust, a central act of state. The point was all of their energies, all of their resources were put into this concern or this desire so that by the end of the war, Germans were no longer fighting the enemy, such as the Russians or the Americans, but what they were doing was continuing to herd Jewish people onto the trains and to usher them to the concentration camps and to the killing centers. Even at the very end of the war, this war against the Jews never stopped. It continued to the very end, and that's because it was a central act of state. 
So when we speak of the Holocaust, we generally think of two groups of people, the Nazis, the perpetrators, and the Jews and others who were the victims. But the Nazis were not the only perpetrators, and the Jews were not the only victims. Oh, oh, hold on. The Jews were not the only victims. There were other victims. This is a shot of a photograph of victims that are being marched in Dachau, one of the camps in Germany, in the southern portion of Germany, near Munich, near Nuremberg, near the Swiss and Austrian border. There were other victims. Three million Soviet prisoners of war were purposely executed, not because they were soldiers, but because they were Russians. And the Nazis hated the Russians, not as much as they hated the Jews. They never classified. If you go to the museum and you see these Nazi posters that were used in schools to teach the students, their children, about the various races, Jews don't even make the posters. But at the bottom of the posters, the bottom of the chain of humanity are the Russians, Slavs, and some others. So when Russian prisoners of war were, uh, were gained, these prisoners of war, more often than not, did not endure the war, but were executed. Three million Soviet prisoners of war. There were two million uh, Poles and Slavs, non-Jewish Poles and Slavs, that were also uh, murdered. There are 500,000 gypsies that were murdered. There were 250,000 mentally ill and physically handicapped that were murdered because of their physical uh, limitations. There are hundreds of thousands of others that were targeted, those that were deemed antisocial, like those who were gay or homosexual. Those who were uh, considered, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses were among them because they would not bow down to uh, Nazi Germany and to uh, Adolf Hitler. There were political prisoners like communists and socialists and others that were targeted by the Nazis as well. To be sure, the Jewish people were the primary victims. In 1933, there were 9 million Jewish people scattered throughout Europe in 21 countries. In 1945, 6 million of those 9 million were murdered. Two out of every three European Jewish person was killed, and over a million of them were children and teenagers. That is just an incredible number to try to get our hands around, and it's really impossible. These are numbers, but they reflect real people who really suffered, like Dan had said, received tattoo marks which only signify the suffering, the endurance, the horrendous uh, conditions that they were subjected to. This is a photograph of Auschwitz. If you visit today, and I had opportunity to do that, you'll see many of the barracks were destroyed, but this is one of the shots I was able to take. Ch Jews were killed in a variety of places. There were slave labor camps. There were ghettos, most notably with the Warsaw Ghetto. In one and a half mile square, over 500,000 people were forced to live. There were concentration camps. In fact, there was a new article, I'll make reference to it, that just came out in the New York Times that said the Holocaust just got worse. How is that possible? What a title for an article. The Holocaust just got worse. 
Some researchers at the museum in D.C. for the last 10 years have been chronicling all of the concentration camps that the Nazis had established. When they started, they thought that they might find somewhere around the order of 5,000, 7,000 such camps. What they have learned is requiring a multi, indeed a five-volume encyclopedia set in order to chronicle all of the concentration camps, what went on there, to list the, the victims that were sent there, for the Nazis kept very good records of them, what they did there, how or when those camps were liberated. They now tell us, this is astounding, they thought there might find five or seven, we, they now tell us that there are over 42,000 concentration camps throughout Europe. They estimate that over 2 million people were slaughtered in those camps alone. Indeed, in Germany, there were over 3,000 camps. What the researchers, and these are not Jewish researchers, but what the researchers are telling us is those Germans, those Austrians, those Ukrainians, those Hungarians who said we never saw anything cannot be telling the truth because of the number of camps we now know existed. And so these are astounding statistics. It only goes to show what humanity can do if left to themselves and how evil sin can become and manifest itself in our world. If we're not careful, we can be complicitous to such things. And thus, on a day like this, we want to remember what transpired. There were six million killing factories in Eastern Europe. In Auschwitz alone, over a million Jewish people were executed. They tell us 2.7 million Jewish people were killed in these six killing centers alone. They are Helmno, Beltzik, Sobibor, Treblinka. There's Auschwitz, Birkenau, and there's Majdanek. Nearly 2.7 million Jewish people. And this is the article. The Holocaust just got more shocking. They documented over 42,500 Nazi ghettos and camps throughout Europe. They estimate between 15 and 20 million people died in these camps alone. But the point that I want to draw our attention to, and time is running out on me, is that along with the perpetrators and the victims, we have to also think of the bystanders the resistors like those in the Warsaw Ghetto and in the fields and in the the forests, the survivors who endured horrible conditions and made it, and of course the liberators, the American and the Allied forces and Russian forces that liberated these camps. It's a very complex study, the study of the Holocaust. And so these bystanders, and this is what I want you to think about, consider this. The Holocaust was carried out by a small number of Nazi officials. There were only thousands of Nazi officials that were engaged in the Holocaust. But notice what they were assigned to do. First of all, they were to find and kill every Jewish person they could. There were 9 million such individuals scattered among 21 different countries among a total population of over 300 million people. They had to find 9 million of them to kill. How were these thousands of Nazi bureaucrats and officials to do this? They couldn't have done it by themselves. A wonderful book that one uh, ought to read is called Hitler's Willing Executioners, which chronicles the work 
of the collaborators and those involved along with the perpetrators. More than 90%, think of this, 90% of the non-Jews would have described themselves as Christian among the 300 million. And just let that sink in for a minute. You've got 9 million Jews, 300 million people, 90% of whom claimed to be Christians, had their names in church membership lists, certainly more than not attended services on Christmas and on Easter, if not on other occasions. They certainly had their children baptized as infants and would have been recorded in the church registries. They certainly would have been there making sure their children had received communion or had fulfilled, if Protestant, one of the requirements in terms of those stages of life in a religious setting. 90% would have said that they were Christians. And the action of this huge group of Christian bystanders was crucial. First of all, the success or failure of the Nazis relied and necessitated the bystanders, as I said before. The killers wanted collaborators. The intended victims needed rescuers. But the circumstances the bystanders faced forced them to make a decision. Their choices were momentous ones that both cost and saved human lives. This is a photograph of Jews that were saved and rescued. I forget the number of them, but that were saved and rescued and brought to, of all places, the Philippines. And there were Filipino diplomats and others that sought to rescue the Jewish people. And this was a gathering of such individuals in 1940 in Manila. And so among the bystanders, there was a small minority who actively collaborated with the perpetrators. There was even a smaller minority that sought to help the Jewish people. The great majority sought refuge in neutrality, not getting involved with the Jews, not getting involved with the Nazis. And as I said, if they didn't get involved with the Jews, the Nazis could accept that because the Jews needed involvement. They could not be saved by themselves. But the Nazis had many other collaborators that they could rely upon. While the Nazis uh, could tolerate neutrality, which in effect meant complicity, if not collaboration, the Jewish people needed rescuers. A small minority of bystanders, and this is what I want to focus on, became rescuers. They risked their lives, and many lost their lives for the sake of saving Jewish people. This is a photograph at Yad Vashem. Because at Yad Vashem, the state of Israel, they honor such individuals. They're called Chazdei Umot Ha'olam, righteous among the nations. They are honored with a medal, a plaque of recognition, and then in their honor, a carob tree is planted in the tree or the row of the Gentiles at Yad Vashem, the memorial to the Holocaust in Israel, in, uh, in Jerusalem. What's interesting about the righteous Gentiles is when you have a group that were part of a resistant movement, none of them wanted to be listed individually. So you don't read of the resistors as individuals, you just read of the Danish resistors, 
the Norwegian resistors, the German resistors, because for the resistors, they felt like they were just doing their duty, doing what they were supposed to do. And they're sort of amazed that they're being honored in this way by the state of Israel. Such individuals are highly respected and honored by the Jewish people. And so at Yad Vashem in Israel, thousands of evergreen carob trees have been planted in their honor. As of January 1st, 2013, there are 24,356 persons from 45 different countries who are so honored. Those who study the rescuers believe that there are at least 100,000 rescuers, but it is impossible to chronicle all of them or to be able to prove all of the stories of all of the individuals. But nevertheless, at present, the countries with the most recognized righteous Gentiles are the following. This is also a shot at Yad Vashem. You may find this hard to see, but first of all are the Poles. Over 6,000 such righteous Gentiles have been honored among the Polish people. One of those that stands out for me is Irina Sendler, who worked for the Red Cross and smuggled out something like 6,000 Jewish children or so from the Warsaw Ghetto. She eventually was caught. She was tortured. But she endured her torturing, and I think she just died maybe eight or ten years ago. What is interesting, for those of you of a political mindset, is the year that Al Gore won the Nobel Prize for the global warming, Irina Sendler was also among the list to receive the Nobel Peace Prize for the saving of Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto. You can decide whether they made the right choice. (laughs) The second was not only the Poles, but the Netherlands, the Dutch, in which something like over 5,000 individuals are named. Corey Ten Boom stands out. But then there is this uh, woman, Gertrude Weissmuller, mayor, who saved 10,000 Jewish children from Austria and Germany. And then there was this Dutch diplomat in Lithuania who had written over 10,000 exit visas for Jewish people. Third on the list is France. And with over 3,000 such rescuers, there is, what's his name, uh, Trachme, Andre, Pastor Andre Trachme, who had saved many Jewish children, is credited with saving some 3,500 Jewish people. If you go to the Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., there's a whole floor devoted to rescuers, and on one of the places they have a whole a display on this pastor, and there is his Bible on display, all marked up for you uh, to read and kind of take, uh, get a glimpse of. But in light of these exceptional individuals, here's the question that must be raised. Why is it that the church has paid such little attention to these righteous Gentiles? Why is it that churches pay such little attention to Yom HaShoah? Why aren't our churches across the nation celebrating this moment? For they have many good followers of Messiah who risked their lives, gave their lives for the saving of Jews in a very horrible moment in history. Why is it not spoken about as it ought to be in the churches? Does that make any sense to you? It certainly doesn't to me. This is a thing that ought to be celebrated. This is my thinking. Perhaps the reason for this 
is because if you're going to focus on those who were rescuers, you've also got to admit of those who were not, who also claimed to believe in the same God. And keep in mind, whether rescuer or collaborator, many of these Christians, you want to call them so-called Christians, you're, you're free to do so, but many of them did what they did in the name of Jesus. And thus, it behooves us to honor these individuals who have risked their lives for our people. And it behooves us to reflect on these people because they stood against the tide of their day and were willing to, be, to stand up and be counted for Messiah and not for their own religion, not for their own church, not for their own denomination or for anything else. They knew that they answered to him and they wanted to do him right and they wanted to reflect his grace and they wanted to manifest his compassion and his love to others. That's the question that raises in my mind. I think many churches, many Christians are ignoring this because it's too painful to look at their track record, not only with regard to the Holocaust, but throughout history with regard to their attitude to the Jewish people. We praise and I join with them individuals like Martin Luther and others who are people to be acknowledged for what they've contributed positively to the church, but they've also contributed some very negative things to the faith as well, not least of which their attitude to our people, the Jewish people. You can't have one without the other. If you can acknowledge him for one thing, at least be honest enough to acknowledge him for the other where he has fallen. I dare say he stands before the Lord now confessing his failure over and over for the things that he had said and what they led to in subsequent years to harm the Jewish people. And I'm sure the the Lord stands before him and says, your sins are forgiven. And that because of his grace. But it does us no good to ignore this, these moments in history, and thus it does us no good to, acknowledge, to ignore what happened in Germany. What was it that made the rescuers different from those who did not? There have been studies done, interestingly enough, in order to assess this very issue and to come to some conclusions. Here are some things that have been learned. First of all, rescuers were men and women, rich and poor, children as well as adults from all classes, all occupations, all backgrounds. There isn't just one kind of person that stood up for the Jewish people. We know that rescuers were not necessarily committed Christians. Some were, to be sure, but not all. We know that rescuers indicate this, and this should say something to us of what it means. We say it in the Shema that we are to train up our children about the Lord, to write them on the doorposts of our homes, to talk about them on the way, when we stand up, when we, are, when we rise up, when we lay down, when we go to sleep. In other words, the rescuers tell us that their parents both taught and modeled caring responses to persons in need. So we know this much, that if we want our children to grow up as good, upstanding, caring citizens, it starts with us. 
not only teaching and verbalizing, but modeling what it means to stand up for those in need and those who are disenfranchised. We know that rescuers across the board speak of a strong sense of social responsibility. That says something to us about our need to love our neighbor as ourself. And how are we making a difference in others' lives? Rescuers were, for the most part, humble people who did not want to be recognized for what they did. When the uh, Yad Vashem authorities would come knocking on their door, they would say, who, me? I was just doing what any normal person, upstanding individual ought to have done. Why honor me? As I said earlier, those in resistance movements didn't want to be recognized individually. They wanted to be recognized collectively with those they served with because they realized it wasn't just them, it was all of us. And therefore, I don't want to be recognized as an individual. So some, though they're on record publicly, you won't read their names, but only a statement about the organization or the group of people they were associated with. We know that, their pers- that each one of these Rescuers had a personal relationship with a Jewish person or family. Not because they lived among Jews. They tell us they had such a relationship because they were open to it. They desired to learn more about others. In other words, they were not prejudiced against individuals who they said, I wouldn't want to know their story. I wouldn't want to know who they are. I, wouldn't want to know, I don't want to know what they are about. Rescuers tell us that they are individuals who had desired to be open to developing relationships with others. They tell us that their connection with a group that influenced them was important. That oftentimes it wasn't just them as individuals, but there were a group of people who were reinforcing and encouraging each other to do what was right. And there were some that said it had to do with their patriotism. They were saying the Nazis were not really uh, Germans and that they were an aberration to German history and to the German people. And they, people like the Danes and the Dutch and those in Holland, they saw themselves as acting out their convictions regarding uh, who they were as individuals and who they were as citizens of their nation. So what motivated them? First of all, they tell us their sense of justice and moral obligation. Some spoke of their Christian faith, and this I found very interesting. And some, because of their understanding in terms of their faith, because of their understanding of the connection of the Jewish people with their faith in the Jewish Messiah. That was one of them. How could we turn our backs on the people who are chosen by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom we worship and serve? Some spoke about the teachings of Yeshua. He told us the golden rule to uh, do what you would uh, that you want unto yourself to do unto others. They said, we asked the question, how would we want to be treated? We would want to be rescued, therefore we must rescue others. They talked about the teaching of Yeshua with the Good Samaritan, how one who is different shouldn't be left on the side of the road. They talked about Yeshua's dual commandment of love, love for God and love for neighbor. They talked about the great judgment. One day we'll stand before God and give an accounting of our lives. And therefore, we must stand with the people who have struggled. So, it is truly a moment 
in time here as we think of Yom HaShoah today. And we think and we focus on those who risked their lives to save some. The lessons that we can learn, and there we learned many from the rescuers themselves. I come back to Isaiah 62, where the, the speaker is the Messiah of Israel. You can see this if you read Isaiah 61, it flows right into Isaiah 62. And in Isaiah 62, the Messiah says, I have set up watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem. Do not give God any rest, Isaiah writes, of the Messiah. Continue to pray to him that he would make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. That he would regather his people and bring them into their homeland. And that he would open their hearts to the spiritual truth of Yeshua, the Messiah, the one who's proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord, as Isaiah writes in Isaiah 61. So our task before us is not dissimilar to the rescuers, is it? We too are to live out our faith actively and genuinely by helping others, by testifying of our faith, Risking what we might for the needs of others. And when I think of those individuals back in Germany or Austria or Poland, it truly is incredible what they risked and what they accomplished as a result. And so the question is, what are we willing to risk for what we desire so much? I know we all desire to see our people come to know him as Savior. And thus, we are challenged to risk whatever it takes to share our faith. That may mean learning about how to share our faith with Jewish people. To learn about our people's history so that we're sensitive to the things that make it difficult for Jewish people to consider Yeshua as Messiah. To be committed to prayer for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And to be committed to discover our gifts and to use them in service to our Lord and for the benefit of one another. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for these men and women, boys and girls, who risked their lives to save those who needed their help most during this awful time in our history. It wasn't too long ago that these events unfolded before our eyes. Many of us were not alive at that that time, but some of us certainly were, and many of our relatives were. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us as we seek to identify ourselves and to be identified more and more by others with our Jewish people. And so we pray that as we march this afternoon, we would do so expressing our solidarity with our people. That as we march, we would do so affirming to all what has happened, particularly to those who would deny what transpired during World War II and what we refer to as the Holocaust. 
We pray that as we march, Father, that a statement would be seen in that we love our people. We mourn with our people's loss. But we also acknowledge your grace in preserving your people and seeing that your people ultimately would be blessed. And so we pray your blessing on our activity this afternoon. May it testify of our love for you and of our love and concern for the people whom you have chosen for yourself. Guide us in this, we pray, and help us always, for we ask in Messiah's name. Amen.